God's good book says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on that which is not bread, and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, says the Lord, and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to my servant, David. God's good book says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. friends and welcome to worship whether you are joining us in the sanctuary this morning or whether you are with us online we are glad to gather with you for worship this morning today is advent one the beginning of a new year on the church calendar a time in which we look forward to the hope the peace the love the joy of god's messiah arriving 
in the world. We begin this journey together, and we do so with great anticipation that as we sing, we hope is true that he came to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. He came to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Let's stand and sing together.
may be seated. This morning, I invite you into a prayer as we uh, close our eyes and pray, and then as we open them and in, uh, invite you into a prayer with the candle liturgy. Our image this week is a camel. Um, so listen for that as you uh, hear this symbolism and as we um, head into Advent 1 together. O Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on this first Sunday of Advent, we pause to recognize our place in a world that has traveled far from you and has far to travel back. By choice or by accident, we have become wanderers. And like the camel, we are all too familiar with long and slow journeys. Do you see where we are? Are you willing to take us back? Please, O oh God, please rescue us from all our misadventures. We have only the gift of giving back to you our journey. And we do so in the name of the one who spent everything to bring us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God's story, the Bible, is a story that includes the most unlikely of characters. Like Noah, an ark builder. Or Matthew, the tax collector. Or Hagar, Abraham's second wife. Or Rahab, from Jericho, with her scarlet robe. Actually, according to the Bible, we too are outsiders. We aren't Israelites. We are called Gentiles. But God's invitation is surprisingly wide and generous. At the time of the first advent, God invited some wise men from afar. Today, we light the first advent can candle to symbolize the hope of being invited from afar. Exclusion brings just. Exclusion brings despair. God's invitation offers hope. The camel is a symbol of traveling far. And if you feel far off, welcome aboard. What brings you here? What's your camel? Who can you invite to come along? God says to all of us, give ear and come to me. Listen to you may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Fellow wanderers, the journey begins today. Jesus Christ, whose advent we announce in this season, is the king that the prophets foretold and the wise men sought and found. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to share a sign of that peace with your neighbors. Just turn to each other and maybe say hello. 
Well, good morning, friends. The Lord be with you. <clears throat> My name is Ross Dielman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where together it is our mission to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. And we are so glad for the many of you who have already uh, uh, living into that mission together, and we're eager for more and more to join us. And what a great time to join uh, at the beginning of an Advent season if you are new among us. We'd love to have you join us in the journeys. Uh, one of the ways to do that would be to find our welcome connection cards, which are at our welcome center out back. You could fill that out, and we could get to know you that way. You could also simply join in to this new journey that we're beginning together called Advent and in a rich way that I'll tell you about in just a minute, but we're excited to do that together. Also, next week, there's a great opportunity to get to know each other all the more, whether you've been here for a long time or whether you are here for the first time. We have a thing next Sunday called Table to Table. We will, in our worship service, gather at the table of our Lord Jesus Christ for communion. And then we will have after that, and especially immediately after this service this time, uh, we'll gather for a meal, uh, for some food, in between services over in the gym. So this service has the priority, if you will, for that one where worship ends and we join together in the gym uh, for some food. Second service folks will be invited to come a little early and uh, overlap with you. That's why you see the time in your bulletin is 9.45. They could come a little early and be there with you in advance. But we look forward to that as a tradition we do once a month, table-to-table -table gathering. And that's next week, Sunday, December 4. You may have noticed also in our bulletins, we have had what we call No Scrooge November. It's on the back of the bulletin with some bars filling up with our generosity initiatives for this past month. Most of those are full. If you would like to still give towards these initiatives this Sunday in particular, perhaps direct your energies towards the Christmas tree that's out there. The Hope Store uh, would, would benefit best from your extra efforts yet today. And of course, you can always continue in giving also online and in the bowls in the back of the sanctuary towards fellowship ministries together. We'll have a new initiative that you're maybe seeing already called uh, the Fellowship Four, which begins for December, uh, uh, so next month, looking ahead. Today is Advent One, as I've already told you, and we are eager to begin a particular journey together. And in fact, there is a special invite from our wandering wise men friends on a video and a few familiar faces from around here. So take a look. <gasps> Hark! Hello there, fellow traveler. What a welcome surprise! A very welcome surprise indeed. What? Yeah, I guess. <clears throat> oh, uh, forgive me, yes. Wandering Wiseman's work is never done, you see. All the prophets and the scribes and their... The adventure. Of course, uh, the adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, We're searching yes. for a king. This is my camel, Lawrence. That's right. A king has been born and guided by the star we wander. And wonder. And learn. To find him. <gasps> Wait a minute. Do you want to come with us? <sighs> you should totally come with us. That's a grand idea. Yes, I could use more help with my scrolls. We could tell stories, sing songs, race camels, build sandcastles, anything. Join us, the wandering wise men, as we search for the king. Uh, guys? What is uh, it? Uh, we gotta go back. I left my frankincense at the hotel. The frankincense? <sighs> I've got things to do here. I am I'm sorry. Okay. I know it's stinky and I shouldn't have lived anywhere, but I left the frankincense back in the hotel. There's many things in your pockets. That's it.
do an Advent devotional for Christmas. I'm really excited to read The Wondering Man. We are looking forward to hiding the wise men at our house and reading a story and celebrating Advent. I'm excited about hiding the little wise men like Elf on the Shelf. Getting closer to Jesus and um, learning more about his birth. Gary and I are really looking forward to using this. I'm excited to hide the wise men around the room and find them. And Wendy Bosma, tell us about your deepest, darkest sin. <laughs> the journey begins this week. In fact, did anybody notice the wandering wise men are hiding in our sanctuary? already and they might be doing this over the next four Sundays there's three of them hidden throughout the sanctuary a little adventure for you to find them somewhere in the sanctuary today if this is new you can still join in the boxes the kits are available just outside the sanctuary and technically today is Advent 1 so we begin together in worship but uh, December 1 is Thursday of this week, so you haven't even missed out on anything yet. Grab your uh, kits out there and the daily devotionals and other such things, including hiding the wise men throughout your house and whatever else uh, would begin this coming Thursday. We look forward to doing it together. Children, if you haven't scooted out already, are free to sneak out uh, to your activities and we'll continue in worship through song. Could you stand and let's sing together?
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gift, the gift of being able to worship you, the gift of being able to gather together as a group of people who are called by your name to pray together, to sing together, to celebrate you together, to study the scriptures together. As we continue our worship this morning, as we turn toward the scriptures, we pray that you would help us to see you more clearly and hear you more clearly and to follow you more closely. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. I am one of the pastors here. And as has been mentioned, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent is a word that comes from the Latin. It means um, coming, as in the coming of Christ. You've heard this word a number of times. Some people are super new to this word Advent, especially if you didn't grow up in a tradition that marked Advent every year. So for the benefit of those who didn't, um, Advent just simply means the coming of Christ. And what we recognize as Christians is that we actually live in between the two advents of Christ, between the first coming of Christ, the incarnation, and the second coming of Christ, when Christ comes to complete the kingdom that he inaugurated in his first coming. So we live between the time of the two advents, and it seems that the scriptures have a lot to teach us about what it looks like to live in this season between the two advents. It's why Advent is a season of anticipation and waiting and expectation and hope um, and joy. And our scriptures show us how to embody all of those things, how to embody the, the proper anticipation, um, which is the reason why today we're kicking off a new sermon series, a series that we're calling God's Great Invitation and the Wandering Wise Men. And throughout this series, we're going to be exploring Isaiah 55 and Matthew 2. And specifically, we're hoping to study God's invitation to the people in the text so that we can hear God's invitation to us and to the rest of creation. And this invitation isn't as clear as one might think. What is the invitation of Advent and Christmas this season? There's a lot of invitations, as it turns out, to sift through this time of year. For instance, there's the invitation to shop for the perfect Christmas presents for the people in your life, or the invitation to cram in as many, as many Christmas parties as you possibly can. Some of you have already gotten invitations to Christmas parties coming up, right? And then there's the invitation to eat freshly baked cookies while decking the halls in your home or the invitation to sing all of our favorite Christmas carols, both together and also with our loved ones, or the invitation to groan when Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas plays nonstop on the radio this season, <laughs> or the invitation to watch 37 versions of the exact same Christmas movie on the Hallmark Channel, <laughs> or to resurrect the argument for the recognition of Die Hard as a Christmas movie because it is. Uh, <laughs> I didn't Photoshop that. There's like a middle million of those online. <laughs> if we're not careful, the buzz of the Christmas season and the busyness of our traditions and even the buzz and the clatter and the chaos of our own hearts might actually drown out the soft, subtle invitation of this season. For it's also the season of Advent that we're reminded that the world we inhabit is not all jingle bells and hot cocoa. It's a world rife with hardship and tragedy and violence and pain. It's a world of mass shootings and genocides. It's a world of broken families and estrangement. It's a world of hostility and hatred. It's a world of abuse and bullying. In short, it's a world held captive by sin, death, and darkness. And precisely because of this, it is a world that is desperate for a hero, one even mightier than John McClain, a world desperate for a king who comes to set things right. In Advent, we anticipate the coming of this king, and at Christmas, we celebrate the coming of this king. But God's redemption of a world held captive comes with an invitation which is why in Advent, there's an invitation for each and every one of us to consider. What is that invitation? And what are the implications of that invitation for us? And what holds us back from accepting this invitation? Well, to find out, we're going to study the first Advent season. 
So hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 55, picking up in verse 1. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread or your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David long ago. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the people. Surely you will summon nations you know not. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we begin this morning in Isaiah, and through the prophet Isaiah, God issues an invitation. And this invitation finds God's people in a very interesting moment. This is a peculiar invitation because it comes, um, because it requires a forwarding address. Because God's people are no longer in the promised land. God's people have been kicked out of their geographical home. God's people have been exiled. In fact, we just sang about this not long ago. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. God's people were exiled. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The 10 tribes uh, to the north were exiled uh, to Assyria. But by the time we get to Isaiah 55, by the time we get to Isaiah 55, uh, the southern kingdom, the last two tribes remaining, have been exiled by the next empire, the newest empire dominating the ancient Near East, that would be Babylon. You can see Babylon on a map there. Babylon is to the south of Assyria. Uh, Babylon is the next empire. They take, um, they topple Assyria, and then they exile, they exile uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. So here's the Cliff Notes version of that. Cliff Notes version of that. Assyria, we can go back to the map. Uh, Assyria is, we can go back to the map. So Assyria is spread out throughout the ancient Near East as the dominant empire of the ancient Near East, but eventually their king dies, and there's a ton of internal squabbling over who's going to lead next. Because they're distracted, Babylon is able to take advantage of the fact that they're distracted, and they topple Assyria. Um, eventually, there's a power vacuum created, though, with Assyria no longer ruling, no longer taking tribute from people, and Egypt tries to fill that power vacuum. Assyria, not Assyria, sorry, Babylon takes um, Egypt, kind of pushes them back to where they are all the way to the south and all the way to the west. Um, and in order, to secure, um, in order to secure their territory, they need access to the lands that are closest to Egypt. Who's closest to Egypt? Judah and Jerusalem, yeah. Yeah, so they decide that they are going to um, basically secure the land of Judah. They take Judah, um, and they essentially say to Judah, same as with all the other treaties, not only are you going to pay tribute to us, uh, but you are under no circumstances to cooperate with our enemy. Who's their enemy? Egypt, yeah. So, <laughs> so Judah, because Judah hates paying tribute, because they don't want to pay tribute to Babylon any more than they wanted to pay tribute to Assyria, they decide that they're going to try to find a way out. And who do they collude with? Guess. Egypt, yeah. So, in Jer <laughs> you can't make this up. So, in Jeremiah, <laughs> in Jeremiah, in fact, God warns them, God warns them not to do this. In Jeremiah 31, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, think war horses and war chariots, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. God intervenes through the prophet Jeremiah to tell the people not to partner with Egypt, but to wait for his help or even, I don't know, maybe seek God's help, ask for God's help. But they don't want to wait. They want the Amazon two-day shipping. Um, and so they collude with Egypt anyway, which enrages, enrages King Nebuchadnezzar, who with his general basically forcibly intrudes Judah three times. Uh, the big year that you want to remember is 587 BC, uh, because in 587 BC, Babylon destroys the royal city destroys the temple, sacks it, sacks the temple, just completely levels it to the ground, but not before looting the temple, 
and stealing everything that they find valuable so that they can put it in their own temple so that they can gloat over the demise of another land that they've conquered. Um, this moment is absolutely, and then they also deport uh, the royal family and virtually anyone else who could possibly lead um, the people, lead a rebellion, lead a revolt in the land. They deport all of those people over to Babylon. This moment is utterly devastating for God's people. It's completely humiliating. It's almost like being destroyed by your rival team in your own house. Go blue. <laughs> this is political, <laughs> national, religious collapse for God's people. Um, everything is a heap of rubble and ash. Um, this moment is known as the exile. And if you haven't noticed, it's probably one of my favorite periods of history. The Second Temple period is immediately after that is one of my favorites. Uh, the reason I love this period so much is because, I, it's one, it's the historical backdrop to everything that we read in the scriptures. Um, everything that we read in the scriptures is informed by this moment historically. Historically, God's people are literally shaping the scriptures from within exile. That's why this story of life and death, choose life and death, the story of, of what happens when we choose death. We're alienated from God and one another. The story of what God will do once we're in exile, all of that runs through the entirety of the Old Testament. Even within the New Testament, um, uh, Peter and Paul refer to people as exiles, as exiles, people who grew up in Rome or in particular cities. God is still referring to them in the scriptures as exiles. They're exiles because of their faith in the living God. Exiles even within the lands that they were born in. It's a really strong metaphor in the scriptures. It's, and so this particular period of time kind of sets the stage for what is happening when Jesus shows up in the first centuries, in the first century. So everything is a heap of rubble and ash at this point. Uh, and out of the ashes of the exile, uh, the word of the Lord comes to a prophet by the name of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a huge work. There's multiple sections. There's kind of three main sections, and we're going to focus on the middle one. Uh, but Isaiah um, begins, though, in that very first section with the word of conviction. Uh, that's what the prophets do. They come with a holy word of conviction and also a holy word of comfort. Uh, Isaiah says the people turned against God in their words and their deeds, and the foolishness of their words and their deeds brought about their own destruction. At the beginning of Isaiah, God's people are called to reckon with some hard news. That sin and brokenness is not just a problem out there. That sin and brokenness is not just a problem for those pagan, uncircumcised nations over there. That sin and brokenness is also here, within and amongst the people of God. And in here, within our very own hearts, the prophet Isaiah says. It's one thing to be an innocent victim when a nation like Babylon starts ripping through the ancient Near East. It's another thing when your own failures bring about your destruction, when your own failure costs you the job or your spot on the team or the promotion or, or the patient's life or your savings or the scholarship or, or your marriage or a relationship with a sibling or the droves of people who leave your church or maybe the church over the scandal that you participated in. The truth of their own culpability for sin is the hard news for God's people. But in Isaiah 41, we hear a word of comfort, a word of comfort, because God has compassion on his people and doesn't leave them to wallow in their own misery and guilt and shame, even when it's of their own making. God says to them, I am your friend. God says to them, I am with you. God says to them, I have chosen you. And because I have chosen you, I will not throw you away. Instead, I will help you and I will strengthen you. In Isaiah 53, we hear the pronouncement of the good news of how God is going to do this, that through the promised servant who takes our sins upon himself, the record of our failures, of our collusion with sin, death, and darkness is wiped clean. And in Isaiah 54, God goes even further. God says he will rebuild the city that was destroyed. He will lay a new foundation. He will establish their walls. He will secure their gates. He will teach their children who will never stray again. And righteousness will be the rule amongst them. The heart of the gospel 
is that the triune God of the cosmos doesn't wait until his people can match his moral perfection. He doesn't wait for them to turn toward him or to reach out to him. He doesn't wait until they can fathom the full depths of his love for them. He takes it upon himself to rescue them and to come up with the plan to do so. He will disentangle them. He will shepherd them. He will guide them back to him. In the hundreds of years leading up to the first, to the birth of Christ, the hundreds of years that make up the first advent, in the rubble of the royal city, in the rubble of the glorious temple, and even the rubble of our own lives and relationships, God says to his people, I will personally restore you. I will make crooked, I will make the crooked straight again. I will make the ransacked whole again. I will restore not only the broken creation and the lives of people, but the broken and sinful human hearts that made it that way in the first place. But it's costly. And we're familiar with the cost of rescue, right? Uh, how many of you um, have heard of like search and rescue crews? Maybe you've interacted with one. Hopefully you haven't interacted with one. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, in Sleeping Bear Dunes, actually, if we can go back to that first one. In Sleeping Bear Dunes, there's a sign that actually warns you about the cost of, of a search and rescue. How many of you have seen this sign, uh, log slide overlook? Yeah, um, I naturally saw that sign and went, I'll risk it. But, <laughs> uh, but if you get stuck down there, they warn you, like, it, they're, like the water levels are really high. The only way out is up. We will literally have to send a search and rescue crew for you, and it's going to cost you $3,000. And in fact, uh, earlier this year, a woman who was on vacation here, I can't remember where from, learned this the hard way. She got stuck. She had to call for help. And then she received a bill for like $4,400 because, you know, inflation. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, recently, in July of 2021, a family of four needed a search and rescue in New Hampshire. And the estimated total of their bill was $5,000. Uh, they were up from Florida, got stuck, and needed a, needed a search and rescue. They received a bill for $5,000. Uh, Recently, actually earlier this year, something like 18 people needed to be rescued from a sheet of floating ice in, um, in Lake Erie, um, up on Lake Erie. Was that any of you? No? Okay, good. Uh, so about 18 people, 18 people got stuck on a sheet of floating ice, like literally the ice kind of broke away from the rest of the ice, and they were on ATVs and snowmobiles. What do you do? Well, it just so happens, this is how lucky they were, that the Coast Guard was doing training exercises and happened to spot them stuck on this like floating sheet of ice. And so they were able to pull all 18 of these people out off of the ice. Um, and the cost of this rescue was something like fifty dollars to $60,000. $50,000 to $60,000, really great training experience for the people who were in the, in the helicopters. But, and now, they will not receive a bill for their personal rescue. Rescuing their ATVs and their snowmobiles, totally different story. So <laughs> the point is, uh, rescue can be expensive. Uh, how many of you made it to a national park during COVID, uh, or several national parks during COVID? A couple folks? Yeah, um, there was a 60% increase in people visiting national parks during COVID over the last couple of years of COVID, as you might suspect also means an increase in the cost of search and rescue. Now, usually within a national park, your rescue, should you need one, God forbid you need one, is covered uh, by the National Park Service. Um, it might also be covered by state services. However, if you are on land that falls somewhere between um, like national and local state services, you might be subject to a bill. Now, um, be, why is that? Because these services are super expensive and they're skyrocketing. And some towns, um, towns in places like New Hampshire or Utah, they have a really, really small population, which means their tax base can't possibly cover the increase in cost. And so some states recently have actually been passing new um, or revising or refining or, or, re, or enforcing um, laws and policies that are on the books that if you are found in any way to be negligent, as in like you're unprepared for the journey, Journey and you end up needing a search and rescue, they are going to rescue you, but they're also going to hand you a bill at the end. Now, some people have raised a white flag or a red flag over this or a color flag, whatever, a flag of a color, <laughs> a flag. Um, the New York Times actually recently um, raised the question, should you have to pay for your own rescue? Now, why are they raising that question? Because if you are somewhere and you are really in danger, like you are really in peril, you or your family or just you, um, 
you don't want to necessarily wait, or you definitely don't want to weigh whether or not you're going to have, you can afford to pay the bill. Uh, what they're raising the alarm about is that for some people, even knowing that there's going to be a cost associated with their rescue makes them less likely to seek help when they really need it, much less likely to seek help when they really need it. Even when it's not due to negligence, the rescue still costs something. But the promise of Isaiah, this promise of comfort, of redemption, of salvation, of restoration, this promise is from a God who doesn't just rescue us from the sin and death and darkness of our own making, but he also covers the cost of our rescue. He doesn't stick us with a bill at the end. He takes the bill for us. And that is the good news of Isaiah. That is the good news, Isaiah tells us, and it's cause for a celebration. In fact, in Matthew 55, we receive an invitation from the desk of God himself, and it's an invitation to celebrate, to party. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy milk, buy wine and milk, and without money and without price. You don't need money for this celebration, God says, because the fee has been paid by my servant. And also, don't fill yourselves on junk food along the way to the party because the best brisket ever known will be set before you at this party. It's an invitation to celebrate, come and feast, God says. And precisely, who is invited to this party? Who's invited to this feast? Well, according to Matthew, it seems that everyone's invited. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to rescue him, come to worship him. So we're introduced to the wise men, or if you're familiar with the Greek, the magi. Uh, the magi were coming from the east. Now, scholars are pretty divided on, the, on who the magi were, but there are a few pieces of historical data that actually help us to fill in some pieces. Uh, for instance, at the time of Jesus' birth, east meant the same thing it means now, east. So east, <laughs> east of Judah uh, is the land of what? Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Media, all those lands to the east. So it's assumed that the east, that these wise men are coming from the east, from these very lands, these very lands uh, that we've been talking about before. Uh, now secondly, we also actually read about a group of wise men in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we learn of them during a period known as the exile period known as the exile. In Daniel, uh, throughout Daniel, but particularly in Daniel chapter 5, uh, we learn of these people called the wise men. They're enchanters, they're astrologers, they're, they're diviners, uh, they're the wise men of Babylon. In fact, when Jewish scribes translate the Old Testament text to the Greek language, they use the word magi for wise men. And apparently all of these wise men reported to a young Jewish man named Daniel. Daniel, in exile from a small conquered kingdom of Judah, became chief of the wise men and the third highest ruler in the land of Babylon. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because this is the stuff that legends are made of. What Daniel does is the stuff that legends are made of. God's people are in Babylon, and it's literally the wisdom of God that interprets a dream for the king that stumps all of the wise men of Babylon, all of the astrologers, all of the diviners, all of the people who are constantly looking at these things can't figure out the answer to the king's dream. And then they find a young Jewish kid who's been captive, who's been held captive from Judah, and his God fills him with wisdom so that he can interpret a dream. They remember this kid. They remember this moment. Why does this matter? Because this is the legend that these people carry of who God's people are. This guy, this kid, Daniel, is placed over the wise men. And so the historians and other scholars seem to support the idea that the Magi were essentially a subclass of eventually Persian priests. Uh, they interpreted dreams, they, they gave warnings to monarchs, and they gazed at the stars and interpreted what they saw. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So they come, 
from the east because they saw a star. They're the pagan priests and mystics and astrologers from somewhere. I mean, they interpret dreams and oracles and stars, which sounds kind of hokey, a little bit strange. It's like sage burning and like vibrations and like auras. They use words like manifest. Uh, at Thanksgiving, you're kind of torn. You're like, do I want to talk to my aunt who interprets dreams or do I want to talk to my uncle about politics? Like it's, it's a tie. They both lose, right? Like this is, <laughs> they're not necessarily people that you would gravitate toward. Um, so, <laughs> but there's one historical caveat. Uh, because as it turns out, Babylonians were prolific astronomers in the ancient world. And the Persians inherited their expertise when they captured the land of Babylon. Astronomy, how many of you took an astronomy class in like undergrad or couple folks. Um, astronomy is actually a science. Astronomy is the study of the stars, the moon, um, um, space, planets, all of that. That's astronomy. That's a science. Astrology, astrology, that thing that's in like the, the back of the newspaper, uh, zodiac signs, all that, that's interpreting stars, moon, planets, movements, all that stuff, and it, giving it a mystical interpretation. Astrology, not a science. Astronomy is a science. What happens in Babylon, and what continues to happen in Persia, what continues to happen in all these nations, is that they basically pull together astronomy, the science, and astrology, astrology, the mystical interpretation of it. And we actually have evidence of this. Back in 2016, uh, New York Times actually ran an article in which they noticed that not only were the Babylonians following a god, their god, their pagan god, Marduk, they associated this pagan god, Marduk, with Jupiter, the planet Jupiter. Um, and even more, they were actually doing some pretty sophisticated math. Um, that clay tablet is a kind of pre-calculus. Any math people can read that? No? Okay, I was just checking. Uh, so they were doing a form of pre-calculus uh, all the way back then that was actually helping them to track the movements of this planet Jupiter. Why? Because they were looking to the planet Jupiter and the movements of the planet Jupiter to try to figure out what God was saying to them, what their pagan god Marduk was saying to them. So around the time of Jesus' birth, a group of pagan mystics and priests and scientists are gazing at the stars and they notice something unusual. Matthew calls it a star that rises in the east. One theory is that they really did see a star just kind of come out of nowhere. A second theory favored by N.T. Wright, who um, has an English accent, so you know he's right, uh, is that Jupiter and Saturn, <laughs> Jupiter and Saturn were actually in conjunction that year. Jupiter, again, the planet for, um, the, the planet associated with kinghood and also specifically with Marduk, uh, the god of Bab Babylon. Um, and then Saturn, the planet that is associated with the Jews because their Sabbath is on a Saturday. It doesn't make sense. It did to them. But somehow they put these two things together. These planets are in conjunction. It must mean something huge, they conclude. It must mean something huge, they conclude. And so they literally pack up a full caravan with dozens of people and supplies and gifts, really, really rich gifts for this king. And they travel what must have been hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles, all the way, all the way to the city of God, all the way to the palace of Herod. I find this absolutely stunning that somehow and miraculously these people are summoned by a star, by a star uh, to come and worship the king. Like those in Isaiah's invitation, they are thirsty and hungry. They have nothing, nothing but a weird mix of astronomy and astrology, but God invites them anyway. And God precisely and particularly invites them God sends an invitation that they would understand. God uses their passions and their interests and their hobbies. God uses their longings and their desires. God uses what they study. God uses what they're staring at on a regular basis. God uses all of it as the ink for the invitation that he would pen directly to them. God summons them from afar. God draws them from afar. And yeah, absolutely, they get there. They need the chiefs, priests, and the scribes, and all these people who regularly study the scriptures to bring them from weird, hokey, star stuff all the way up to there's a Messiah who's been born, or there's a Messiah who would be born, and this is where he would be. They need the scriptures to get them the rest of the way. They need the people of God to get them the rest of the way. But they follow their awe and their wonder all the way to, um, to the land of God's people. Um, these wise men follow the awe and the wonder and the curiosity all the way to where they might expect a new king of the Jews to be born, which is the palace of Herod, the very, very politically savvy king of the Jews, which is where we'll pick up next week. I will close with this. Um, 
there's a great moment in C.S. Lewis's The the Silver Chair. How many of you have read this? Maybe you read it to your kids, read it as a kid. It's one of my favorites. Um, In The Silver Chair, all the inhabitants have um, been held captive in Underland, uh, compelled by the curse of the Queen of Underland, who is also known as the White Witch. And the curse has left them glum and gloomy and not remembering who they are anymore. They don't remember their identity. But, and they're also carrying really, really heavy loads for her, uh, really heavy loads for her, working, slaving for her. But through a truly heroic effort, the prince manages to vanquish the queen of Underland, thereby breaking the spell. Now, the moment is cosmic in nature, uh, as in all those who are held captive know that something has changed, but they don't quite know what has shifted. It actually takes the prince and his crew, Jill and Puddlegum and Eustace Scrub, to ride throughout Underland, announcing to the captives that the spell has been broken. Their announcement is met with cheers and shouts as people celebrate their freedom. I think this is our invitation this season to participate in this announcement, um, to participate in this good news, to participate in the freedom that we now enjoy in Christ. And that participation looks like, it looks like celebration. It looks like joy. It looks like all the fun of the season. But it also looks like extending invitations to other people. It looks like what Isaiah says, which is to let your soul live by listening to the word of the Lord and also being a witness to the peoples, to be people who are marked by Christ's reign in us and to people who extend Christ's reign through us. So where does Christ want to reign within you? Where is Christ inviting you into a freedom that you can only find in him? Where does Christ want to reign through you? Where is Christ calling you to announce to someone else that the curse is broken? The joy of this season is found in our invitation to celebrate and to participate in God's reign in and through us this season. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so grateful for your invitation to celebrate the good news of what you have done for us, to rescue us, to bring us back to yourself, to eliminate all of the things that would alienate us from you and to bring us back into eternal, eternal joy within you. We are grateful that not only do we get to celebrate, not only do we get to um, shout songs of joy in this moment, but that we also get to help other people be a part of this party, that we get to invite other people into this party, and that we get to announce, that we get to be your instrument for announcing that the curse is broken. So help us to live lives and to tell stories that announce the the breaking of this curse in every place that we find ourselves this season. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray, amen. Friends, Jesus came to rescue, and he is coming again to restore all things. I invite you to stand, and as Pastor Tierra said, we get to practice the opportunity to respond with joy.
final blessing for us this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.